In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Listen to my prayer, O God. Do not ignore my plea. Hear me and answer me. Evening, morning, and noon. I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. Cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. Glory be to the Father, and and to the the Son, and and to the Holy Spirit, as as it was in the beginning, is now, and and will will be forever. forever. Amen. As we look ahead to Sunday, this Sunday is one of the most um, important and beloved Sundays of our church year, and it's All Saints Day. It's the day of the year when we commemorate all of those who have passed since last November 1st, and their names are added to the Vine and Branches Memorial in the main entryway of the church. Now, All Saints Day is an old uh, festival within the church year, and it is intended as a way to uh, remind us that we are connected with the church triumphant, uh, that the church is divided into two parts, the church militant and the church triumphant, the church militant being all of the people still alive here on earth, and the church triumphant, those who've already received their crown of glory and are seated around the throne in heaven. And All Saints Day comes at this time of year, and it is a a day of, of great celebration and thanksgiving as we are reminded that God keeps his promise to those who are faithful. But it's also a day of of mourning and remembering as we grieve the loss of those who have gone before us. And so it is a day when uh, you have both sets of emotions happening simultaneously. Um, The hymnody of the day is just always so moving and and draws you into what's going on, and the readings are some of the most well-known readings we have. And yet there's always this lingering sense of sadness about being reminded to look around and see the empty spots in the pews around you of those who used to be present in our midst but are now uh, waiting for us in paradise. And the readings for this Sunday of All Saints Day are the same every year. And so because we have dealt with the Beatitudes previously, which is the Gospel reading, We're going to take slight variation, uh, or uh, I guess because we've dealt with the epistle previously, the Beatitudes are always the gospel. Uh, This year we're going to look at what is the first reading, which is the reading from Revelation. And the reading from Revelation comes from Revelation chapter 7, and it's divided into two parts, uh, verses 2 through 4, and then 9 through 23. Um. When you use the term church militant and church triumphant, <clears throat> those are not scriptural terms. They don't, they don't come Correct. out of scripture. They're, they're theological terms that, that I, I, I guess I wouldn't know which, which period particularly they, they come from, but it's, it's definitely a theological construct from a later time. Right. And I don't know which, uh, when the, what time period they were developed. But if you look in the hymnal, that we divide even hymns this way, that there are some devoted to the church militant and then some to the church triumphant. A church militant, a great example of that is Onward Christian Soldiers or Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus. Those are church militant hymns because they deal with the church here on earth spreading the gospel. Uh, church triumphant hymns would include things like Behold the Host Arrayed in White or Um, for all the saints, although for all the saints does talk about both groups and does a really good job of holding them uh, together. 
Right, talks about soldiers and, and yeah, right. it, it, it fuses the two really well. It does. It gives a, a most beautiful picture of the the unit, the unity of the church. But as far as when these terms are developed, I don't know that. So. Oh, well, sorry, sorry to hit you with a question that <laughs> well you're prepared for. It's good to know that I don't know everything. <laughs> well, and and before we move on to talk about the specifics of Revelation, Revel, this Revelation reading, which substitutes for our Old Testament. Correct. Uh, reading. So there is no Old Testament reading. It just starts with Revelation. Then we have a um, uh, uh, the, uh, an epistle um, from First John. From First John, and then and then the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount, um, which is uh, interestingly, I, I looked back a year ago. That was what we focused on: was was blessed are they in the Beatitudes. Right. So it's 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 good that we're uh, uh, changing our focus for this year. Right. And this does happen that the Old Testament reading is turned into a New Testament reading throughout the year. Uh, this question came up two weeks ago with the Feast of St. James, Martyr, Brother of Jesus, and Bishop of Jerusalem. Uh, his first reading was a reading from the book of Acts, chapter 15. And it was after that that I did get some questions where people said, wait a minute, we didn't have an Old Testament reading. You're the, right. These were people in the pews, not... not uh catechism students who are trying they were, to figure out where was the Old Testament reading? Somewhere? Well, one of them was a family of a catechism okay. student, um, but others were people in the pews. And it's worth noting that this happens a couple times throughout the year that we don't receive a reading from the Old Testament. Instead, we get something either out of Acts or Revelation. And the big time when that happens is Easter. Uh, all of Easter, the Old Testament reading becomes the first reading and it comes out of Acts. Which is which is perfectly ties all saints to the Easter season. Correct. Because when you think about the themes of the two, there, there's so much overlap. Right. There. And then we also get it with a couple of saints days and then of course all saints day as well, where the first reading is from Revelation. And note that it is the first reading, not the epistle that has changed. And the reason for that is because the epistle is a letter written to somebody. Acts is not a letter, and neither is Revelation. Acts is the continuation of the Gospel of Luke. It's kind of like Luke part two. And Revelation is a book of prophecy given to us uh, from Christ through the Apostle John at the end of his life, and therefore uh, also is not an epistle. Uh, an epistle is strictly a letter. And so when we substitute either Acts or Revelation into the reading list, it replaces an Old Testament reading and becomes the first reading or the New Testament reading, therefore preserving the location of the epistle and the gospel. So with that information in mind, why don't we look at Revelation chapter 7, and would you please read for us verses 2 through 4. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So this is the first portion of the reading, and it gives us a glimpse of the church militant or the church here on earth. And John is seeing the church in its completion and is reminded that it's still on earth, but the church is still God. 
And we get this great phrase, and I guess I should preface this by, or should have prefaced this by saying, what happens in Revelation chapter 7 is kind of a break in the chaos of the judgment, and you get this moment of reprieve in Revelation where there's this beautiful reminder that God protects his people, that God preserves his church. And so this is intended to be a series of readings of comfort in the midst of the judgment that comes in Revelation. And so John sees this, and he sees that the church here on earth still exists. It's still present, and God has sealed the servants on their foreheads. Now, the church is ordered here. I heard the number sealed, 144,000 sealed from all of the tribes of the sons of Israel. They're lined up, ready for battle. It's organized, and the 144,000 is the sign of complete perfection, that the fullness of those that God is going to call to be his children has been met. We should not see this 144,000 as a literal number that when God hits that, he's got his people and that's it, but instead to be seen as a factor of 12 times 12,000, 12 being a number of completeness, 12,000 being the ultimate completeness, Therefore, 12 times 12,000 would lead you to 144,000, which would be the complete perfection of completeness. And um, There's some kind of a reference. I mean, it's, it's a backwards reference to the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Right. And so I was going to come up to the 12 tribes in just a second okay. here. Um, <laughs> and the, this 144,000, it does align with... Um, you. There's all kinds of work that's been done about how you can see how in numbers... Uh, some of this would lead you to this number that uh, at one point in time, God calls a 1,000 out of each tribe, which gets you to 12,000. And there's all kinds of background stuff out of the Old Testament that can be backfilled into this. Uh, but ultimately, we just need to see the 144,000 as the completeness of God's people. And they're lined up and they're ready for battle, but... God is still protecting them. Uh, they're ready for battle, which does mean that the church on earth will suffer and die in the Lord's mission. But the church never loses her faith. Because what happens what is what comes in verse 9, all those who die in the faith out of the church militant enter into the church triumphant where their reality is changed and their experience of being in the church is altered forever. Now, you had mentioned about the backwards reference to the 12 tribes of Israel, and so it's, it's mentioned here, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. If you were listening at the beginning, you noticed that I said that the reading for Sunday will be verses 2 through 4 and then 9 through 27, 23. So you might ask yourself, what happened to verses 5 through 9 or 5 through 8? It's a listing of 12 tribes, and it just says 12,000 from the tribe of. So it's 12,000 from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph. Now, if we, just, we could do a whole hour devoted to what's going on in those 12 tribes because it does not match the Old Testament listing of tribes. Uh, two are interchanged. I think it's Daniel and Ephraim are dropped out of the Old Testament list, and two other names are put in because Daniel and Ephraim are associated with apostasy and idol worship, and um, there's all kinds of stuff that goes into that 
that we don't have time to in this podcast to address. Um, but there's something special about the number 12 that even though those were dropped, there's more were there's added more, in. More kind more of like in. the number of disciples. When right. they were no longer 12, they made sure that they, they elected right. another one to make it 12. That's why we talk about it as being a number of completion. Mm -hmm. There's the 12 disciples, the 12 tribes. And elsewhere in Revelation, John is going to see the throne of God surrounded by 24 smaller thrones, one for each of the heads of the tribe of Israel and one for each of the apostles, uh, which is quite a breathtaking moment because when John makes that observation that he sees uh, the, the people sitting on those thrones, it means that somehow he is able to see himself already seated on the throne even though he has not yet died and passed into the church triumphant. But again, another podcast for another day. So um, what we need to just walk away from this portion is, with is this. John is able to see the fullness of the church on earth, and he is comforted by what he sees, because even though it's a church ready for war, he sees that God has promised to protect and preserve the faith of those still living on the earth and is waiting to usher them into the church triumphant. So let's then look at the next segment of this, and let's look at verses 9 through 12. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So now John's vision has shifted. He's no longer looking at the church on earth or the church militant. He's looking at the church in heaven, the church triumphant, those who have already been gathered around the throne of God. And notice the numbering difference here. He's gone from seeing 144,000 sealed to a great multitude that no one can number. A reminder to us that the church triumphant, the church in heaven, is far greater in size than what the church on earth here could ever be because it is the fullness of the history of the Christian church. And so all of the saints are gathered there, all of those who've died in the faith, from every nation, every tribe and people and language, they are all present and John can see them all. And hearkening back to the promise that God gives to Abraham, your children will be greater than the number of stars in the heaven or sands on the sea. John now sees the church, the descendants of Abraham, and it's more than he could ever number. And then he tells us what, they're, what they look like. They're clothed in white robes, and they have palm branches in their hands. I thought this was a little bit interesting, or an interesting nugget that I found. This is only the second time in the New Testament that palm branches are mentioned. The other being the triumphal entry? Right, yeah. in John. John's the only one who's talking about palm branches. And so I thought that was kind of an interesting uh, thing to pull out of that. But palm branches here, signs of a victory, that they have been triumphant, and that's part of the church triumphant sign. In Christian art, 
historically, if you saw somebody holding a palm branch, it was a sign that they were a martyr. Um, often martyrs were always pictured holding a palm branch. Um, they didn't always hold it, but if you saw someone holding one, you knew that they were a martyr. And uh, part of that, it comes out of, of this uh, reading here in Revelation. So now we've seen a little bit. We've seen the people. Now we're going to hear them. And they cry out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then the angels respond, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power might be to God forever and ever. It's quite possible that this is an antiphonal call and response, that the, the people in heaven sing out the greatest attribute of God, the most important thing he's done since creation itself, which is bring salvation to creation. And when they call out, this is what God has done, the angels and the living creatures and all of the other uh, accoutrements of heaven can't help but respond with thanksgiving, worship, honor, and praise because they're, they're trembling at the uh, knowledge of what God has done for the sake of his people. And of course, that line should sound very familiar to us because it comes out of this is the feast that we sing at Easter. Right. It's, it's an example of, of what we call a, a canticle. It's, it's something from the Bible that's a song, um, not necessarily from the book of Psalms. We, right. we, we take a lot from the book of Psalms because that was the hymn, hymnal mm -hmm. of the Old Testament. But then in the New Testament, there are many, many passages for example, Mary's song from, from Luke and, and um, um, uh, Zechariah's song, Simeon's song, they, they all have worked our way into our liturgies as canticles. Mm -hmm. And this is the, the more recent one, that this is the feast which has taken its place as a hymn of praise at the beginning of the liturgy, which um, it, I think that was certainly a bold move of the, of the 20th century that they created this new canticle and substituted it for the Gloria, which had been a standard part of the liturgy for centuries. Mm -hmm. But the, the sheer power and message of this particular passage, I think, gives it that weight that it can right. stand up uh, uh, to that usage. Well, um, and for a long time, this was sung in the church, but it was sung as part of the daily uh, practice of observing matins. It was part of the Te Deum. And so you were singing this heavenly hymn as the text was being pulled into the Te Deum during the matin services. But as churches stopped offering daily matins and started um, having services only on Sundays, it was a great way to bring this canticle back in, give it new life um, in the liturgy of the church. Right. And the, the, the Te Deum, um, the Te Deum is, a, is a conflation of a lot of different passages right. and ideas well i mean for that matter the glory is too it's 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 all lumped together um the nice thing about the gloria is it kind of it's almost like a, a retelling of the creed in a way mm -hmm. um and um so yeah i i think um you you're right there that it's a it's a way we can hear those passages if we don't sing the today more regularly which is right. something now, especially that we do matins so less often, is, right. is definitely we're in, we're in danger of having happen. <clears throat> yes. And so then why don't we finish out this section, please, verses 13 through 17. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, 
Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is, in my mind, one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture. Um, you get this picture of an angel or one of the elders coming to John and just checking in with him. Who are these clothed in white robes and where have they come? And telling them these are the ones that have come out of the great tribulation. The church militant that you just saw preparing for war, not afraid because they know that God is going to preserve them in the faith. This is their reward. They've come through that. Their robes have been washed and made white in the blood of the Lamb, which blood should not be able to do. And yet the Lamb's blood does because it purifies and makes us holy. And then we get the last three verses, which is basically a restatement of Psalm 23. It reorders it a little bit, but it's mm -hmm. almost like you take Psalm 23 and read it backwards because it, Psalm 23 ends by saying, and they will dwell in the house of the Lord to get forever. And this section begins, Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. We get this imagery of the safety and the comfort. They shall hunger no more, nor thirst any more. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He restores my soul. And then uh, the beginning of the psalm, the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, is Psalm 23. He will guide them to springs of living water. He restores my soul. And then this beautiful line, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Talk about the care and compassion of God coming to life in a whole new, very personal way. And I quote, this is, uh, I've got a lengthy quote here, uh, right out of the commentary that I was working with because I thought it was just absolutely beautiful. Uh, the author wrote, the God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the final truth that describes the rest and the peace of the crowd of the saints before God's throne in heaven. Tears and laments are a part of the experience and character of the faithful people of God while on earth. Tears are shed over one's sin and the sins of others, over ruin and sufferings experienced by others, over one's own afflictions, when confronted with God's anger, when alone and in sorrow. But God has promised to turn weeping into joy, for as he promised in Isaiah 25, 8, the Lord will wipe the tears away. What a beautiful promise for All Saints Day, because we see those tears and those laments as we live here on earth. Tears that are shed over one sin and the sins of others, yeah, the way we hurt each other, over ruin and sufferings experienced by others, watching disasters carried out on the earth, uh, watching war and, and conflict around the world, over one's own afflictions, the sufferings that we have, the illnesses we encounter, confronted by God's anger, that sense that 
what I have done merits God's anger or when you're lonely or in sorrow, grieving the ones you've loved, in the midst of that pain, God steps in and promises he will turn that to joy. And he promises that he will wipe those tears away. And he does that for us all through his son, who is the lamb in the midst of the throne, who is our shepherd, who guides us by living water and has sealed us for his kingdom. It's, it's an imagery. I mean, they, they quoted Psalm 126, but it appears many, many times in the Psalms. Psalm oh, 30 is, you turn my wailing into dancing. And, and, and then um, I forget which other Psalm it is. It talks about being fed fed with, with bowls of tears. And, and it's, it's, well, I think it was Luther himself that said that there's no human experience or emotion that isn't found, you can't find in the Psalms. Right. It is, it is a book of the, of the human experience. Yes. Mm-hmm. And Revelation pulls that in for its benefit <clears throat> to remind us that God has experienced them himself through his son. But his son comes and triumphs. And so while we live here in the church militant, we do not fear because we know that God has promised to preserve the faith and bring us through the tribulation to that place where he will wipe the tears from our eyes and call us to our eternal rest in his heavenly home. I've heard this at many, many funerals, and it's, it's, it's because it's just so appropriate. And, and it is so appropriate and so incredibly powerful. And so as we look ahead to All Saints Day this Sunday... These are the things we need to keep in mind, that while we continue to do the work here in the church militant of proclaiming God's word, we do so without fear because we know that God in his time will bring us into, his, uh, into our eternal resting place. And when we enter into that place, he's already there waiting for us. And the good shepherd will, will pick us up, take us home, and wipe those tears from our eyes. As we think about those promises of what God has waiting for his saints, we have a really unique opportunity this Sunday to hear a new choral arrangement that has been written for All Saints Day or for this time of year in honor of one of the saints of our congregation, Pastor David Lures, and it was commissioned by his family to be uh, written in his honor, and it's going to be debuted here, saying for the very first time uh, during our services on Sunday morning. And so the choirs have been at work preparing this, but we thought today, instead of focusing in on a hymn, we would take a moment and talk about this piece that has been commissioned. What does that mean, and what is the piece all about? And so, Paul, would you share with us a little bit more about what this piece is and, and how it came to be? The title of the piece is I Am the Alpha and the Omega, and um, that may be familiar to you from Revelation uh, 21. Um, It's symbolized in our church, right on the altar, there's an alpha and the omega there. It's it's a very common symbolism in churches that uh, it uh, it stands for the beginning and the end. And the... the, um, neatness of literally the neatness of how this all comes together is that it comes from the book of revelation which is indeed the end of the bible the new creation the completion Um, yet 
there's references to the first creation when you think about it way back in Genesis. And in fact, this was something that was on Pastor Luer's mind that, that the Bible is very complete in that way and that you have Genesis and you have Revelation and the two, everything else in between is a lot of details, mm -hmm. but you have the beginning and the end there. So it's very, very appropriate, I think, that, that the uh, composer focused in on this one particular phrase, the beginning and the end, um, because it was on his mind, but also because it's a, it's a phrase that's obviously very important in Christian art, but it's one that, for whatever reason, hasn't been treated very often in song or in choir anthems. So it's a real opportunity there to create something new and very profound um, that, that's, that's an obvious gap in our, in our repertoire. Well, and it should be noted that the reason why this text was chosen for this choral anthem by his family is Pastor Lewis had a very keen interest in the book of Revelation. And as he, in his retirement, he was working on a devotional commentary on Revelation itself. And the night before he passed away, he had asked for pen and paper so he could continue to write. And in the hours before he died, he wrote his final thoughts on this text or these texts from Revelation 21 and 22. And so it's not often that we have an actual record of somebody's final thoughts and words, but we do from him in their reflections on what John sees as the great promise of what happens in the new creation. And, and so we know that as uh, his time is coming to an end. This was very much on his mind. It's what he was thinking about and what he was writing about um, as he was able to contemplate uh, this wonderful promise of God that, uh, that he is there at the beginning, he is there at the end, and that he is there for us. I think it's maybe worth um, reading the entire text. It's not all that long. And just noting that uh, the pieces of the text come from Revelation chapters 7, 21, and 22. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Let everyone who is thirsty come. Let anyone who wishes take the water of life as a gift. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. God will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I am making all things new. I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Amen. So um, when we were talking earlier about the very end of the, the Revelation passage that's the reading for Sunday, he will wipe every tear from their eyes, included right in the middle of this one. Um, Musically, it's very interesting what he chooses to do. He creates a theme at the beginning where the choir sings, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Um, and he brings that same musical material back at the very end of the piece. A very logical thing to do. That right. the beginning and the end are right. one and the same. They're identical. Also interesting, he uses the effect of canon. And canon means you take a melody and you weave it out, and another voice comes in a certain uh, amount of time later singing that same melody. 
identical music, they're just spaced apart and they, they work together. They don't fight one another, they just, they harmonize, but they right. are the same musical material. The way we're normally introduced to this is row, row, row your boat, sum Correct. in two parts. Correct. And so it creates that unity that, that things are woven together through all time and space. And there's no beginning and no end, much like row, row, row your boat could literally go on forever and ever and ever because there's no beginning and no end. And uh, to highlight that at the very end of the piece, he adds a third part. There's women, there's men, there's a descant that uh, kind of uh, dresses that up even further, almost like a, um, uh, like a, a new creation, like the, the, the book of Revelation represents, is that it, it, it just, it's this fulfillment of everything. Right. And it's, it's really a beautiful piece. And I hope that uh, uh, when the choir re renders it on Sunday, you're able to appreciate some of this, uh, the nuance of that. Um, moving through the middle of the, of the piece, um, death and pain will be no more. It definitely changes character and it's very reflective of those texts. And um, when he sets the words, for the first things have passed away, it becomes very subdued and peaceful. Um, and, and I think he does a wonderful job of painting, painting these different uh, passages from Revelation. Right. So I, I, I hope that um, our, our performance of it on Sunday brings that all, all right. off the page. Well, I have not heard this yet, but I have read through and, and looked at the music. And one of the things that strikes me is not only does he play with that canon, but the way that he resolves it at the end, which he, as he gets these three parts building one on top of the other, even though they're moving at different times and uh, emphasizing different parts, in the end, they all end together. And then at the very end, it's all on one note. Because even though you get these layers of what God is doing throughout the story of salvation, there is only one thing that happens, and it's the story of God's love. Right. The final amen, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that. The final amen, um, the choir is singing the same pitch in different octaves, high, medium, low, whatever happens to suit their particular voice type. The accompaniment fills in the chord, but the choir is singing all on the same pitch as almost almost to say there's this one thing, there's this unity that happens, mm -hmm. this oneness, that's, it's, it's a revol uh, resolution of, right. of, of everything and that it has to be that way. And one of the choir members actually uh, voiced the, the thought that they were a little bit frustrated because we're all singing the same note. We want to sing harmony. Well, no, that isn't your job here. Your job here at the end is to show this this unison and, and this oneness. And, and one of the unique things about um, choirs and the acoustics of choirs is, is that if you, if you use this effect, it has a very intensifying effect. If everybody's singing the same pitch, it makes this, the sound of the choir seem louder and more intense right. than it normally would if it were broken into, right. say, four parts, it right. created harmony. The closer they are together in their pitch, the more in tune they are, 
the more intense it is because the sound wave just gets so much right. more amplified. The, you're mutually reinforcing. And an octaves that is spread apart uh, by eight notes, it's the same pitch. It just creates an intensity of sound that you don't get when you're singing chords. Right. So the, it gives the illusion that the choir is actually stronger or more, more intense. Mm -hmm. And so ver a very purposeful treatment of the text. Right. Yes, it's, and how he brings that all together is, is really quite a remarkable thing that he's able to do. And so as we are getting ready for All Saints Day, this is one of the things that we are uh, bringing into the All Saints Day observation for this year is this new piece celebrating what God has done. Uh, because whenever a piece is commissioned, it's, it's done in memory of someone or for some purpose. But ultimately, what the goal is, is it's not a piece about the individual who, for whom it was commissioned. It's a piece about what God has done for that person or through that person. And so when we see this, yes, it has been commissioned by his family in his memory, because this was something he was thinking about and, and contemplating at his death. But in the end, it's a celebration of what God has done, and it's able to bring to life what God is still doing for his people. And it puts the focus where it needs to be. It's, it's, it's outside of us. Uh, you, mentioned, you mentioned that in your sermon two weeks ago uh, on St. James when you talked about... Uh, one of your last witnesses can be planning a Christian funeral that, that, that conveys that message. Right. Um, that you don't, you don't stop preaching at your death. You preach through it. You share the gospel through it. And that return to the hope of what came after you were called to eternal rest becomes the ongoing echoes of the gospel in the lives of those that you've loved. This is one of the things I try to reinforce to our catechism students, and I do it in, in terms of the fourth commandment, honor your father and mother, that you don't stop keeping the fourth commandment when they die, you stop keeping it when you die, because your life is a testimony to what they have given to you. And the same thing goes for the Christian faith. Your life, your Christian faith, is a testimony to the life that God has first given to you, and that testimony continues after your death as people are reminded of the hope that you had in Christ. Uh, it occurs to me, you, you think of that a lot when you walk through a cemetery too, just sometimes mm -hmm. by the, maybe the, the scripture references that are stenciled onto the stones, it's, it's, it's that last witness. Right. Um, Paul and I just had the opportunity a couple of weeks ago where we were in a cemetery together, and one of the things I pointed out uh, to you was that one of my favorite uh, tombstones, and this was a, a very popular thing to do several decades ago, are the, the stones that have a, a, a lamb engraved on the top of them. And to me, I think that's just such a powerful image. And there's a lot of these at uh, Woodlawn Cemetery that have the lambs on the top of, of the reminder of what we see in the text from Revelation for this Sunday of the lamb is in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, that we are the lambs of Christ's flock and we are the flock of the good shepherd. And so it's just that reminder to that relationship that God has, that promise that he is the good shepherd um, and 
we will dwell in his house forever. So I'm very excited to hear this piece. I have um, not yet heard it. I have uh, read through the text. I've seen the music so I can imagine what some of it sounds like, but I'm very much looking forward to hearing it in its, its fullness and completion, being able to see this text come to life. Because as you noted, surprisingly, there are very few musical pieces on this text from Revelation. And I, um, I just quickly did a search to see if there were even hymns that mentioned it. There was one, and, and that one did, did come to mind for me. It's, it's in the middle of the, the Charles Wesley hymn, Love Divine, All Love's Excelling. Um, Alpha and Omega B. I don't know if you remember, if, if you recall that phrase. I do not. Um, does it appear in um, Of the Father's Love Begotten? I think that Alpha and Omega is referenced in there, is it not? Mm, not, not sure. One, one would think so. One would think so. Well, now I'm curious. Maybe. I don't know if I, I should use the time on the podcast to be able to look it up. Um, but for whatever reason, it strikes me that it would be. Well, in while there you're as looking well. that up, let me comment a little bit about about the about the Wesley reference. Um, it it turns out that that it's just a a, a passing mention of Alpha and Omega. Uh, Wesley certainly doesn't explore that idea any any further beyond that. It's okay. just a phrase that I think happened to to float through his memory, and he thought, well, that would that would be a, a great poetic. Uh, uh, imagery or phrase to throw in this particular hymn. So he doesn't really expand on it. So I, I would say that it's, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't even qualify really right. as, a, as a treatment in a hymn. So I would say of the Father's Love Begotten actually gives it a much stronger um, look. Uh, the first verse of the hymn, of the Father's Love Begotten, ere the worlds began to be, he is Alpha and Omega, he the source, the ending he of the things that are, that have been, in the future years shall see, evermore and evermore. And so it is referenced in that Christmas hymn as well. Although in looking at the text, while we always associate it as a Christmas hymn, it could be very much an end of the church year hymn too. Or any, or any time of the church right. year. Yeah. So. so as we uh, introduce that hymn, those would be some things to be uh, looking at, and not a hymn, choral anthem. As we introduce that choral anthem, those would be some things to listen for, is how uh, does the, the composer set this text to music, and then how does he convey what John is telling us in Revelation through the music that the choir is singing? Let us pray. O Lord, have mercy upon us. O Christ, have mercy upon us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Blessed Lord, you've caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant that we may so hear them, read, mark, learn, and take them to heart, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. 
Please join us for worship this weekend. Our worship opportunities are at 8 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. on Sunday, and on Mondays at 6.30 p.m.